Good morning, good morning. There, there we go. That was on, that was my fault. I'm sorry. Um, well, good morning again and uh, welcome to Prairie View. Uh, we are continuing this morning with our sermon series on the Beatitudes, which are found in Matthew 5. Uh, if you don't know, that is the beginning of Jesus's sermon on the Mount. And so far, as Joshua uh, discussed a little earlier this morning, um, we've covered Matthew 5, 1 through 5. So we have discussed, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. We've also looked at what that word blessed means and a little bit more at the sermon in general. This morning, we will take a look at the fourth beatitude found in Matthew 5, verse 6, which is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, Before we do that, though, I thought it would be nice to read this passage, the Beatitudes, out loud together as a church. And as we do this, I'm hoping that you will not just read the words, they'll be on the screen behind me, um, that you won't just read the words, but that we as a people would be confessing these words to be true together. So... We'll hopefully get those up here. Uh, technology's been a little weird this morning, but so far so good. There they are. Excellent. All right. I will begin, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've spoken to us, that you reveal yourself to us through it in it. God, that we could know you and come to know you more and that you um, just give us wisdom for how we are to live uh, here in this world. Father, I pray that this particular morning, as we turn our attention to this particular beatitude, that you would give us clarity of mind and purity of heart to see and hear and understand what you have to say for us this morning. And whatever burdens we might be bringing into this place this morning, God, I pray that we as a church would bear those well with one another. And that as we turn our attention to your word, we would find strength. We're bearing those burdens, both our own and those of each other. I pray as well that as as we come here, if we're celebrating, that we would celebrate with one another. And, and as we turn to your word, the same would happen, that you would be working on us and in us and through us to make us more and more into the people that you have made us to be. Father, we love you. We thank you. And we pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. So one more time reading from Matthew 5, verse 6. This is the beatitude we're looking at. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
it's going to be useful to brush up on what that word blessed means. Blessed has a variety of meanings. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's worth repeating. Uh, Here in the Beatitudes, what blessed means is something like happy or flourishing. You could even interpret these verses in this particular Beatitude as the good life belongs to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, having established the meaning of blessed, which if you're curious, we can talk about that later. Having that established, there are three things that we need to understand this morning. There are three things that arise naturally from this text. First, we need to understand hunger and thirst. Second, righteousness. And third, satisfied or satisfaction. So beginning with the first, what does it mean to hunger and thirst? The answer, in one sense, is obvious. All of us have inevitably felt hungry. Some of you may be hungry right now. The thought of food pops into your head. It's not necessarily unwelcomed, but it's not invited. It was uninvited. It's unexpected. And it becomes a chore to focus on anything besides the food you crave in that moment. Maybe it's a handful of M&M's. Maybe it's a bite of original Lay's. Maybe you're more refined and so you desire a fancy wine or a thick cut of steak. But you and I, we know what it means to be hungry. And in a similar vein, we know what it means to be thirsty. But there is a sense in which hunger and thirst are hopefully completely foreign to us. Let's look at Genesis 21. As you turn to Genesis 21, and the words will be on the screen behind me. um, But in Genesis 21, we find a terrible event in the life of Abraham. As he sends away his servant and her son and his son, Hagar and Ishmael. So we won't go into the details of the story this morning, but suffice to say there was a bitter rivalry between Abraham's wife, Sarah, and their servant, Hagar. So Sarah told Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, and that's what Abraham did. So reading in Genesis 21, starting in verse 14, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone... She put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. You and I, we know what it feels like to be hungry and thirsty. But few, hopefully few, if any of us, know what it feels like to feel the agonizing pain of hunger and thirst dragging us to the doorstep of death. To lie down in the wilderness with the burden of watching your child die, afraid that you will soon share the same fate. Hunger and thirst are not simple matters of preference or taste. They're a matter of life and death. Hunger and thirst are tied by nature to your very survival. 
The Bible tells many stories with famine serving as an essential element of the plot. There's famine in the story of Abraham. There's famine in the story of Isaac a few chapters later. There's a famine in the story of Joseph, also in the book of Genesis. There's famine in the story of Ruth. There's even famine in the parable of the prodigal son. Why? Why so many? Well, because they happened, yes. But also because famine, hunger and thirst, strips away all but the barest necessities and reveal who a person is. What will they do to survive? What will you do to survive? Looking back to Genesis 21 and this account of Hagar and Ishmael, consider how pitiful it was that they went into the wilderness with nothing but bread and a skin of water. They weren't being kicked out of one town into another or out of their home into an otherwise already established town. Abraham and his people were camping in the wilderness when Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out to fend for themselves in the barrenness of the land. And suffering hunger and thirst, Hagar did not expect themselves to survive. With this beatitude, Jesus is not merely referring to your preferences as though it's enough for you to prefer righteousness. He's not merely commenting on your tastes or desires as if he hopes that you like righteousness more than you like unrighteousness. While those things are true, and we should like righteousness more than unrighteousness, these words in Matthew 5-6 should make us think of desperation. Jesus is calling to mind your most basic need. When everything else is stripped away, when you find yourself in the midst of famine, what is it that you long for? What is it that will satisfy you? His answer in the text is righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied And that leads us naturally into our next point. What is righteousness? But before we get there, I have one more thing to say about hunger and thirst. That we hunger and thirst is unavoidable. It is in our nature. But we are not born with hungers and thirsts for coffee and Coca-Cola, ice cream and cookies, or kale, quinoa, and cauliflower pizza. We learn these tastes. Our tastes are acquired. But how? Most simply, our tastes are acquired by trying something and finding it good. Every every once in a while, I will go to the grocery store. And every once in a while, while I'm at the grocery store, store, I will return home with either a bag of Doritos or a box of Pop-Tarts, sometimes both, depending on my mood or how close it is to my birthday. Um, These are foods that I loved as as a kid, and I still find them delicious, and it takes very little for me to want to buy those foods. In fact, it probably takes me more effort to not buy them As I walk by them in the grocery store, I look, I see the price, I say, not today. Other times, we acquire taste through sheer repetition as a matter of discipline. 
Certain flavors might, might not earn a five-star review the first time we, we taste them, but the benefits of eating or drinking, whatever that is, outweigh the taste. And so maybe you eat enough salad until one day you find yourself at dinner craving salad. Your taste for righteousness works in much the same way. Some aspects of righteousness might be immediately appealing to you. They will come easily and require little effort. But that doesn't make them any less righteous. But on the other hand, there will be parts of righteousness that strike you as repugnant. But if you want to live the blessed life, the good life that Jesus here describes and prescribes, you will need the discipline to pursue those aspects of righteousness that you find less palatable as you learn to hunger and thirst for them. Which brings us back around to our next question. What is righteousness? We are supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but what is righteousness anyways? For that, we will begin by looking at Philippians 3, verses 7, 8, and 9. So starting in Philippians 3, verse 7, it says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In this passage from Philippians, we see righteousness being used in what I think is its most familiar sense. Righteousness is a legal status. It is a matter of approval according to law. And within the scope of the Bible, that law is God's law. So to be righteous is to be blameless and free of guilt according to God's law. But as Paul makes plain in these verses from Philippians, righteousness is not something we can achieve on our own. Elsewhere, scripture teaches that no one is righteous. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Under the demands of the law, we are all found guilty and wanting. But God sent his son to fulfill the law, dying in our place so that we might be made righteous. Righteousness, freedom from the penalty of God's law due to our union with Christ and sharing his righteousness. That is a gift we receive by faith. Christ's righteousness is our hope and lifeline. Apart from it, apart from the righteousness of Christ, we would all be hopelessly lost. By faith, we are united with him. Jesus Christ stands joyfully as our righteous representative. And if you will be saved, you must desire the righteousness that belongs to Christ. But that's not the righteousness that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 6. How do we know? Because it's not the way righteousness is used in the Sermon on the Mount or in the rest of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew, righteousness does not refer to a legal status 
the way we were just explaining. It refers to an upright way of life. For example, Matthew 6, 1 says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. I suppose we could interpret that to make it fit this legal description of righteousness. But it is much simpler and much more accurate to understand Matthew 6, 1 as saying what it appears to say on its face. Don't do good deeds Don't perform righteousness in order to be seen. Those good deeds, that righteousness he's referring to, will be explained in a few uh, later verses. We won't look at them this morning. But he's talking about giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. He's saying, don't make a spectacle of these things. My point in bringing Matthew 6 in is not to unpack what Jesus is saying there or to divert our attention that direction. It's just to demonstrate that in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, righteousness does not mean what it means in Philippians. The different uses of righteousness don't mean that Paul, Matthew, or Jesus are contradicting in their theological positions. Righteousness can easily, simply be harmonized if we just let it mean what the text means. The entire Sermon on the Mount could be considered a sermon or a discourse on the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to be disciples. He is giving them ethics of the kingdom, beginning with the Beatitudes. You may recall, and we actually read a verse from this uh, before we sang Build My Life this morning, but in Matthew 7, Jesus has He he, he tells a parable about a builder who builds on sand versus a builder who builds on rock. And the one who builds on sand is the one who hears Jesus's words, but does not keep them. His house is washed away when a storm comes. It should be obvious to a careful reader that Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to affect actions and transform conduct. He's not merely teaching a new set of beliefs or ideas to hold in our heads. There are lots of those in the sermon, but that is not the final point. He is teaching for new things to live in our heads, yes, but he is also teaching to motivate our hearts and move our hands. We must be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, in the Old Testament, righteousness carries with it the idea of good and proper action. And while we may be tempted to read this legal status into every instance of righteousness in the Old Testament, in which case we can never hear me, we can never behave our way into legal approval under the law with God. We can never earn righteousness in that way. But when the Old Testament is talking about righteousness, it is most often referring to behavior that aligns with God's instruction. As such, righteousness as a word can serve as a catch all for the kingdom of heaven, the place where God rules and reigns and his loyal subjects joyfully submit and obey. Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8 say this, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. 
He judges the peoples with uprightness. The kingdom of heaven is marked by justice, righteousness, and uprightness. And we should note that righteousness is not some universal standard that God is appealing to. God is the standard. Righteousness is conformity to the Lord. Like love, true righteousness is an attribute of God. And any pursuit of righteousness, any hunger and thirst for righteousness will ultimately lead us to the Lord. Rightly understood, a Christian pursuit of righteousness is not some backsliding mistake into legalism or self-righteous righteousness where I can work my way into heaven. Hungering and thirsting for God, for righteousness rather, is longing for The God who reigns in justice and righteousness. We don't look for the goodness of righteousness apart from the God who grants it. Now, given this definition, righteousness is fundamentally a matter of self-denial. Righteousness is submitting your will to God's will. It is saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus demonstrates this during his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hours before he's crucified. In anguish, Jesus prays that he might avoid the cross. Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus also demonstrates this death to self during his temptation in the wilderness found in Matthew 4. So we'll turn our attention now to Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led up, up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In the wilderness, Jesus was hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days Through fasting, he was practicing self-denial. This is what actually makes righteousness so difficult. It is an act of self-denial. We spend our entire lives practicing to do what we want to do, and then God breaks onto the scene of our lives and demands we knock it off immediately and conform our wills to his. And that's hard work. It requires breaking habits that have placed ourselves in the center of the universe and creating new habits that revolve around Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's part of what makes fasting so powerful. It is denying your most instinctual need, food and drink, and submitting that instinctual need and drive to your actual, real, most basic need, which is God himself. Christ's hunger for righteousness was stronger than his hunger for bread. Let's look at Deuteronomy 8 uh, quickly, which is where Jesus is uh, quoting from in his response to the devil. Deuteronomy 8 verses 2 and 3 say, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God was telling the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8 that he did what he did, that they might learn to trust him. The parallels between Jesus and the Israelites are not a coincidence. Jesus was also in the wilderness, not for 40 years, but 40 days. And he was learning and being tested to know what was in his heart. But unlike the Israelites who were fed every day with a miraculous supply of manna, Jesus has gone without food. Yet he does not waver in his commitment to righteousness. His hunger for righteousness is greater than his hunger for bread. He was not submitted to his belly, but his heavenly father. Jesus was willing to forego food and drink because he knew that it is God who guards his life and guarantees his survival. Which brings us to the third part of our verse this morning. How will those who hunger and thirst for righteousness be satisfied? For that, we'll look to Second Peter verse three, or chapter three, starting really only verse thirteen. So Second Peter three verse thirteen it says, "But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells." Brad's communion meditation this morning hit on a lot of these ideas. One way in which those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied is that the new creation that Christ will establish when he returns will be filled with righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness now, who wish to see injustices undone, sins abolished in their own lives and in the world around them, those people can be sure that these things, these wicked deeds, these sins, these unrighteous, this unrighteousness, it will be no more in the coming kingdom. God will satisfy your hunger for righteousness in the new heavens and new earth. But this verse, Matthew 5, verse 6, is promising more than a future satisfaction. It's not less than a future satisfaction. We will certainly be satisfied in the future with Christ our King. But God can and does and even will satisfy you here and now. But this will turn, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Jesus is speaking and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. As I mentioned before reading that just now, that is in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it would be foolish to read those words and not consider them together with our beatitude this morning. In Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus commands us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness with the assurance that all these things will be added to you. And what are all these things? Well, in that passage, they are food and drink and clothing. Jesus is saying, seek God, seek his kingdom, seek his righteousness, and you will receive what you need. You will be satisfied. I truly believe this. I am completely confident that God will meet your every need. God will meet and has met my every need. But what God knows that you need might not always match what you think you need. Sometimes you may need a little extra money or a lot of extra money. Sometimes you might need a clean bill of health. But sometimes you might need to learn how to continue relying upon God's goodness in the midst of hardship and suffering. Sometimes you may need to rely less upon your own cleverness to solve your problems and more upon the gracious generosity of others, of God's children. And all of these things, God will never leave or forsake you. You can be confident that he will satisfy you. And even if you are unsatisfied in this life, you can be sure that your resurrection life in the new heavens and new earth, will provide satisfaction beyond all comparison. And that hope will satisfy you right here and now. This is what Paul means in the famous words of Philippians 4.13. I'm going to read Philippians 4.12 and 13. They say, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance... I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus describes, we are striving to align our tastes and desires with God. But even more strongly than that, we are looking to God for our very survival. More basic than your need for food and water is the God from whom righteousness flows. And when we seek this God through the life of righteousness that he commands us, we can be sure that he will satisfy. Through faith in Christ, we sinners are declared righteous, blameless and guilt free under the law. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being made more righteous as we are empowered to live lives that accord 
agree with God's good designs for creation. And when Christ comes again, we will be made complete in righteousness, living in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. In the meantime, we can trust in the goodness of God our Father to meet our every need. Trusting that he knows our needs much better than we do. So yes, the good life belongs to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to know you more. God, that as we grow to know you more, to remember all the things you've done for us, all the ways you've provided for us, that we would grow in our love and affection for you. God, help us to see and know your goodness and to learn to trust in it. And God, in the places where it's hard and it's, it's challenging for us, where it, our, ourselves are so strong, Help us to deny ourselves and follow you. Help us to trust again in your goodness, in your good plan, in your love and kindness and compassion for us. God, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That as we follow you, we would find that we delight in the righteous path that you set before your people. God, help us to trust that you know our needs better than we do. And as we come to you in prayer, with our hearts broken, crying out, with whatever famine, whatever drought, whatever hardship we might be facing, as we lift our needs to you, God, help us to always, always remember that you know our needs better than we do, and you will always satisfy us, that you will always take care of us, and you are always working for the good of those who love you. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we go from here this morning, that you would grow us in our hunger and thirst for righteousness and knowing that righteousness is only ever coming from you. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.